Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. Invite all those who are able to stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, which we do out of respect, but also in solidarity with Christians around the world. And our first lesson this morning is two passages, first from the Gospel of Luke and then from 2 Corinthians. Listen now to what the Spirit wants to say to the church this morning. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves and rogues and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once again, those who are able are invited to stand for our second lesson, which comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. And today on this first Sunday in Lent, we, we begin a, a sermon series, The Way of Blessedness, and we're going to study the Beatitudes two by two or one by one, depending on how the series falls out. Today we're going to look at two Beatitudes. Listen now to the Word of God. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He had sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Will you pray with me, please? Once again, loving God, we appeal to You, the Sovereign One, the Gracious One, the Present One, and we ask 
that you would impart by your Holy Spirit supernatural power now to our finite minds, that we would understand clearly what it is your word is saying to us as it is, has now been read and is now proclaimed. Let me, God, we, our, our physical bodies need supernatural help because here we are, maybe at the end of a long week or the beginning of a hectic one, and we ask, Lord, by your Spirit that you would bring our bodies alive, that we might be receptive to your words and not sluggish and sleepy, but awake and alert to receive these words of life that you have prepared for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. To his glory and his glory alone we pray. Amen. So one Sunday morning, they drove home from church and the little girl turned to her father and she said, she said, Daddy, there was something that the preacher said in his message this morning that I don't quite understand. And I replied, what? I mean, he replied, what was it? The little girl went on to say, well, the preacher said that God is so big, that God is bigger than everything, that that God is so big that God could hold the whole world in His hands. Is that true, Daddy? And the Daddy said, yes, that is true. God is very big. Then the little girl went on, but Daddy, the preacher also said that, that God comes to live inside us when we believe that Jesus is our Savior. And the Father said, yes, that is true too, my dear. With a puzzled look on her face, the little girl then said to her dad, then if God is that big but lives inside of us, doesn't that mean that God would show through? That's what the Beatitudes are all about. God showing through us and even despite us. It's always been God's purpose that when He enters our lives that God would so fill us and control us that God would show through us. That God would be visible in our attitudes and in our actions. Not that what we would do would just imitate Jesus or try to do the things that Jesus would do but that Christ Himself would live through us and shine through us as if we were a plugged-in light bulb on the inside that glowed for the world to see. The Christian life is not acting a certain way. It is being a certain way. Being Christ-like, not acting Christ-like. One preacher said, the Beatitudes are to be your attitude. And here as we embark on this Lenten journey, this sermon series, The Way of Blessedness, I want to say a couple of words of introduction about the Beatitudes. We find them in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, we remember, was written to primarily a Jewish audience. And that's important for us to remember. Matthew is a gospel that quotes the Old Testament more frequently than any of the other gospels. Matthew points us to Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the life, in the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
That's important for us to remember about Matthew. The other thing that we know about Matthew is that Jesus is the greatest teacher. Moses was the great teacher up until that point. And the Jews were looking for the one who would follow Moses, the one who would be greater. And Jesus said, there is one greater than Moses, I am he. To follow along that line of thinking, there are five books of the law in Jewish in the Jewish Scriptures. We call them the Pentateuch, like a pentagon, pentagram, five books. In Matthew's Gospel, there are five blocks of teaching. Matthew wanted to, to parallel that idea of the Pentateuch with these five teaching blocks of material that Jesus gives in Matthew's Gospel. And here at, at, at chapter 5, through chapter 7, we have the first block of those five teachings in Matthew's Gospel. This first block of teaching is known as the Sermon on the Amount. Excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount. That's a stewardship sermon. We'll get to that one later. It's a sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we find the Beatitudes, these teachings of Jesus. It's been said that the Sermon on the, uh, on the Mount is the core. And if the Beatitudes, which are the first 10 to 12 verses of this block of teaching, are, are said to be the core of the core. If the Sermon on the Mount is the core, the Beatitudes are the core of the core. So we are getting down to the basic element, the teaching of Jesus Christ. It's been said that the Beatitudes are the blueprint of life for a citizen in the kingdom of God. And Jesus came to reveal the nature of God's gracious rule and to show us what it looks like for a human being to live in perfect freedom governed by God's will. It's the very life of Jesus Himself that Jesus is teaching. It is the very life that Jesus embodied that He is imparting in these teachings known as the Beatitude. We can look at the life of Jesus as described in the Beatitudes, a life that is blessed and content and at peace, a life that is full of unbridled joy and contentment. It is a life, though, that is poor in spirit. It is a life that mourns. It's a life that is pure in heart. It is a life that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It is a life that is persecuted and reviled for God's sake. And we see in all of these Beatitudes the very life of Christ lived out. Here we see Jesus Himself. So for us to seek the blessedness of the Beatitudes is to live the very life of Christ. Jesus begins His teaching here about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. What does it sound like? What does it look like? And then Jesus went out and embodied His teachings in this way of blessedness. And we are called to do no less. When we follow this blueprint of the kingdom of life, this way of blessedness by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we so become disciples of our living Lord. And He shows through us. Let me ask you a question. What 
would, how would life be different if Jesus were to come and take your place? Live your life in your home. What if Jesus took your place in your home? What if Jesus came and performed your job? What if Jesus sat in your desk at school? What if Jesus came and filled my place in this pulpit? And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus came to make His home with us and within us. And by so doing, to mortify the carnal works of our sinful selves. To master the circumstances of our life and to minister to others through a, a life that touches everyone. And so knowing this, it makes me wonder, does anyone ever see God showing through me? Well, if they did, I know what He would look like. For the Beatitudes are that picture of Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus mourned. Jesus was meek. Jesus was pure in heart. Jesus hunger and thirsted for righteousness. Jesus was reviled and persecuted even unto death. And this is why we study the Beatitudes, and particularly during Lent. We're going to look at two Beatitudes very quickly today. But let me pause here for a commercial break. Because this is a perfect time to say as we embark on this sermon series and embark on small groups in the life of our church to encourage you, admonish you, invite you to become a member of a small group if you have not done so already. A sign-up is in the bulletin and there are multiple opportunities throughout the week that might meet your schedule, but if it does not meet your schedule, then at least contact the church and we would be glad to order a book for you so that you can go through this study even on your own because it is a beautifully written book that is very powerful. I had the chance of, of being with Marjorie Thompson, I believe is her name, uh, we're close friends, and when I was a young pastor, I attended a retreat at a Methodist center, Lake Genelusco, that she led in spirituality. She's well known in Christian circles in her, by her writings, and Stephen Bryant, who also wrote with her. They have done a marvelous job. And this is not just a study to impart information to fill up our heads so that we've got more biblical data and we can score higher on a Bible quiz than anybody else. No, this study takes us from information to formation so that we can apply it in the living of our lives. And it does so in a beautiful way, developing practices of prayer, Scripture reading, spiritual exercises, worship, and even acts of service. It engages us in that way so that we might cultivate the dispositions of a Christ-like life of kindness, gentleness, gratitude, love, and joy. So let me say, get into a small group. These beatitudes that we study are primarily the dispositions of the soul, of our inward, our inward posture toward God, 
our outward relationship with others and our understanding of ourselves. The Beatitudes direct our way of being in the world. So are you ready to look at the Beatitudes? Are you? Do you want to know what it means to be poor in spirit, to be blessed to be poor in spirit? Debbie got us off to a great start with the children's sermon, but do you want to know? Let's go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me say a word about blessed. It is a word that has been translated as happy, but, but I don't like that translation so much because happiness depends on happenings. And as we know, our happiness can change with the happenings. You win the lottery, you're happy. You lose your dog, you're not happy anymore. But I would say that this blessedness that Jesus talks about is more about an internal joy. A joy that, that comes from within, that is given by God. A blessedness that depends upon God. The joy of the Lord is my strength and nothing can shake it. And so blessed, happy, content, full of joy are those who are poor in spirit. And it does not mean poor-spirited or dejected or downcast. What it does mean, and closer to the meaning of the word of spirit, is to substitute for the word spirit, ego. Now listen, blessed are those who are poor in ego. Because ego means self. And people who are rich in ego are full of the same. Proud, haughty, conceited. People who are rich in ego are self-satisfied, they're self-content, they're self-seeking, they're self-centered. There was a novelist that described one of her characters in this way. She said, Edith was a small country bounded on the north, south, east, and west by Edith. To be rich in ego is to be self-centered. It is to possess such an acute sense of self that one, one's world begins and ends with themselves. The old preacher said, the only music the self-centered man hears is the blowing of his own horn. And then he went on to tell a story of a writer who was talking with a group of people in a social setting. Let's say it was a, a, a cocktail party. And he was regaling those around him with his recent activities and accomplishments. And then finally he stopped and said, enough about me. Let's hear about you. What do you think of my latest book? <laughs> to be poor in spirit is to have a posture of humility of self-forgetfulness. To be poor in self means to be rich in God. And we see this in Jesus. Jesus was constantly not pointing to Himself, but He was directing people's attention to His heavenly Father, who, whom He called Abba, as a child refers to the parent. Dada. And Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own, but only by what my Father allows me to do. I seek not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me, Jesus said. Why do you call me good? Jesus said. There is no one good but God alone. And I love Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, the servant's song, which scholars believe is one of the oldest creeds of the church. 
that says about Jesus this, that though He was in the form of God, though He was fully God, He did not consider God something to be grasped or achieved, but He emptied Himself out, adopting the role of a servant and being obedient, and even obedient unto death and death on a cross. What a beautiful picture of our Lord, poor in ego. The strength and transforming effect of the beatitude to be poor in spirit is then to show us what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And it comes from a willing surrender of our will to God's will. And here's a joyful paradox that we see in all the beatitudes. That when we recognize our spiritual poverty, God's fullness can flow through us and fill our emptiness and our weakness. So it is to be blessed, to be poor in ego, and to know what it means to be in the kingdom of God. The second beatitude for this morning is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Messiah Jesus has been described as a man of sorrows and one who is acquainted with grief. Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. Jesus shed tears when He approached Jerusalem and saw the city and her refusal to see God's repeated attempts of His gracious and abundant love and forgiveness and acceptance. He wept over those who would still turn away from Him. Jesus wept and weeps over the state of the world. Jesus wept and weeps over the state of our sin. To mourn means to see the world and ourselves as we are. And that's rather difficult for us, my fellow Southerners, is it not? We like to kind of put a little candy coating on everything. Not let people know what's really truly going on with us and how badly we are hurting. We can be bleeding out on the floor and someone can say to us, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just fine. But to mourn means to be honest. And that does not mean to be self-absorbed or overly melodramatic. It's, a, it's about what the church father Gregory of, of Nyssa said. It is impossible for one to live without tears who considers things exactly the way that they are. It is impossible for one to live without tears when one considers the way things exactly are. It will bring us to mourning and to grief. And the only way through grief is to understand that it is loss and to experience loss. Whether we lose a spouse of 60 years or lose two dollars, it's a loss. And we must go through grief. And until we go through grief, we cannot grow in our knowledge of who God created us to be and who we are in relationship with another, and who we are in relationship with the God of all mercy and comfort. The Scriptures say that weeping, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The shepherd's song says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
And the operative word is through. We must go through the valleys to get to the mountaintops. No pain, no gain. And we must acknowledge the pain that exists in our lives and in the world and in the lives of others. We must mourn to receive the comfort. You know, the, the text that we're using for the, the small groups um, has this beautiful story in it where this pastor kind of poo-pooed this idea of church members bringing casseroles to everybody. Why, why do Christians always show up with a casserole? Until he experienced a loss in his life. And someone came with that casserole, that prepared meal of love and sustenance. And he changed his whole attitude about casseroles and adapted and adopted in his ministry a theology of casseroles. And we've got some people who've got a doctorate degree in that study. Thanks be to God. Let me tell you a brief story. It was shared with me in the life of this church during a Bible study. There was a, there was a family who lost a grown son. Can't imagine the grief. And the story went that a woman in, in our church upon hearing that dreadful news, made a casserole and showed up at the front door of that family. That woman who delivered the casserole had lost a grown son. And when the woman experiencing the recent loss opened the door and saw her standing there, she did not need to speak a word, but simply offered her gift of presence and a good casserole. When we are willing to mourn, it opens us, opens us up to others. It opens us up to our faith and it gives us new perspective. Mourning also means that we are honest and aware of the sad state of the world and our complicity with the sad state of the world. When we mourn, we cannot ignore the sin of the world nor our own sin or the sin in other people's lives, not to condemn it, but to mourn it and minister to it and with it. And Jesus grieved over stubbornness and blindness and fear and faithlessness and self selfishness and willfulness. Jesus grieved and grieves over it. The writer of the Hebrews says of Jesus, of His grief and His mourning, in the days of flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. When was the last time you had a good cry? Not out of self-pity, but out of self-awareness. When was the last time you had a good cry aching for another? When was the last time that you had a good cry hurting for the, for the demise of the church of Jesus Christ in today's world and culture? When was the last time that you, you had a good cry for the world itself that has lost its way and lost in sin? And to do so is to enter into the fellowship of Christ's suffering. For to show compassion is to know compassion. And compassion means to suffer with. And in this way, there is blessing in our sorrow. Our study text says this, in Christ's suffering, all of our suffering, sin, 
and misery have been taken up and transformed by God alone. And then our study guide tells a story about Uncle Milton, a pastor, who was celebrating his 40th anniversary with his family on a boat on a lake in Kansas. I didn't know they had lakes in Kansas. But a freak tornado came and ripped apart the vessel that they were on. And overboard went his wife Grace, his daughter Sarah, and his granddaughter Melissa, and all three were drowned and lost. Three generations gone. And someone came to Uncle Milton, the pastor, and they said, I don't know how you can go on. And Uncle Milton said, there is no alternative. All my ministry, I've told others that God is good. God loves God cares. God's grace is sufficient for every need, he said. And now I know there is nothing else on which we can rely. And knowing this, my friends, is when comfort comes. We cannot change the fact of death and loss, but yet we can join with Jesus in His redeeming work in the world and comfort others as we have been comforted ourselves. And in this compassion and comfort, Jesus Christ will be made more fully manifest and we will more fully know and claim what the Bible tells us is on the way, a new heaven and a new earth where death will be no more, where mourning and crying and pain will be no more, and God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Every tear. Hold on, my brothers and sisters. That day is on the way. Amen? Amen?